I was just look, uh, unlucky to be born in my era. I think at the time with that amount of quality, but too much pressure can kill people. And I've seen the negativity that goes into the on the sidelines and the referees getting absolutely hammered. And the first thing I said to him, I was like, where does Alan Shearer sit? And he pointed to a spot. Now I, I went over there and I sat down and I went, I'll be sitting there. And he looked at me straight away and he thought, who the hell do you think you are? Guys, welcome back to the So Close So Var podcast. It's your host, Sohel Var. I am here with Ben and Josh today, swapping roles. And uh, they're very excited for today's guest. I'm not excited. Every time I see him, he makes me run. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Hyped for this episode. Um, let me read out the stats. You guys try and get take a guess who it is uh, before we announce the guest. So he's got over 200 appearances in the Prem, 13 seasons in the Prem. By the way, 215 appearances for Newcastle United. He's played in multiple different continents, uh, Australia, Europe, North America, Asia, all over, and recently transitioned to a manager role and is actually my current manager at Golf United, Stephen Taylor. Hey. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us, guys. Absolute pleasure. We're delighted you're here. So I guess first thing we got to get out the way, Last night, cup final. Thoughts on the game? Do you really want to start that way? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, why, why are you starting on a downer? All right, let's start. Let's start on a on a bright mood. We got two games left. Um, so context: um, Stephen is my coach at Golf United. Uh, we've had a great season so far. Two games left in the season. Um, pretty much, it comes down to getting two wins. Yeah. We get those two wins. We get promotion. So it's looking good. I guess that brightens the mood a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. What was the result last night? I didn't see it. We killed them. Yeah, we killed them uh, 5-0 last night. So for me, it was a good start to the uh, to the night and then go and enjoy the uh, second half. But 2-0 down, watching uh, Newcastle Man United game was killing me. Just the amount of, obviously, how many years we've been waiting for something like this. Yeah. And especially the squad, the team, the manager we've got now was probably uh, the best we've probably looked in a long, long we time. We were in the best position yeah. to do it last night, weren't I we? I think so, yeah. I think with everything going on, the, the form that they've been in this season, I think the fear factor now going into games where you know, we're outworking teams and we're causing a lot of problems, I think, uh, for Manchester United, uh, they got lucky, I think, with a couple of the uh, decisions and uh, performance from our boys. They give everything, so there's, there's no, obviously... Um, you know, bad vibe from the Newcastle fans. They they give their uh, they give their all. So that was a, the biggest thing for me. Well, I think in terms of the experience, I mean, we took, I think uh, Sky Sports said close to a hundred thousand from Newcastle down to London, invaded Trafalgar, uh, Trafalgar Square, wow. and um, yeah, there wasn't a, a red shirt in sight in the whole of Wembley Way. No. So even the black and white flags and scarves in the last minute when we're two 0 down, and you know, it's it's a lost cause at that point. I think um, that sets us apart, and there's only one real United, to be honest, in terms of the support. I, I saw some of the videos like leading up to the match, and I've never really seen like much of Newcastle United, but the fans you guys have is insane, unrivaled. That's just the, normal. The That's best. just like a normal day in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, we come down in, uh, to London and we take over London. I think wow. I, I felt like there was millions, never mind hundreds of thousands. Hundred percent. It felt like millions just took over London the atmosphere, everyone in the black and white shirts. And that just goes back to the old school era. You know, the Kevin Keegan days, the Sir Bobby yeah. Robson days. That feel good factor is back. You see how happy the fans are. And then join themselves again. And that's the biggest thing I think for many years now, they've, you know, they haven't had that something to look forward to. And I think mm -hmm. the belief is there now. What do you make of the connection with the ownership? Obviously, I saw a lot of footage of Merdad and Jamie Rubin and obviously Amanda Stavely. They were in and amongst the the craziness uh, at Trafalgar Square. Darren Eels as well. Darren Eels, yeah, with a, with a pint of lager in his hand and singing the songs and Br we've got Bruno in the middle. Like, what do you make of that compared to, you know, what it was like during your time? It's how it should be. I think for Newcastle, you have to understand you, what you're coming into. The, you know, they got involved in uh, ownership of the football club. It's a football city. And I think the fan base that Newcastle's gotten is still a sleeping giant. Like if we won yesterday, the, what it do for Newcastle puts us on the map, the attraction for players coming. But they buy into it. They understand what what they were doing. They've come here. They've got the right people involved. I think uh, organisation with getting the um, you know sporting director Dan Ashworth from from Brighton. I think they've uh, bought very smart. Um, people probably expected all the money that was coming in investment. We're going to go and buy Mbappe and all these top top names. But I think their plan 
for the next three to five years is working. Maybe we going a bit too too fast, you know, this season. Did they expect to be where they were? Probably not. But if you ask the ownerships this year, where do you want to be? I would say probably Champions League. I think they honestly believe we can get Champions League and then next year, can we kick on? Yeah, for sure. Is silverware just a matter of time? I think so. I think it's just we've proved that this year. You know, yeah. like I've said, the, the main focus was, I think, top four. I think the season that we're having um, and I think the teams who you expect to be up there, you know, they've, they've been out of form and they haven't been hitting their uh, their main form from maybe the World Cup. I think it's affected a lot of teams um, and a lot of players have struggled, whether that's through injury, lack of form, uh, a lot of players unhappy, managers coming in and, um, you know, this, I think Graham Potter has been under pressure, but yeah. he's, a, he's a top manager. He's just... Has he had his you know full strength side? Had a lot of injuries, and I think his main thing for me, I, I said the other day, was his, his Kante and players like that. When you miss big players like that, it affects your team. In terms of your own Newcastle United career, let's start from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I was actually doing a bit of research, and I found so many similarities between us. We're both six foot two, both both English, <laughs> both started our careers as strikers, transitioned into defenders in our early teens so I just looked at myself in the mirror and was like where did it all go wrong <laughs> so I want to know from your side um how did well how was football obviously being in Newcastle it's just football mad but how was the start in in football for you I think from a football bra- uh, background with my uh, cousin um you know Adam Sadler who is now the Leicester City assistant manager he was at Manchester United as a kid as a goalkeeper uh, always up there every night playing football with him my dad every time after school was always in the, uh, the field with uh, friends and um, it was always the kind of way I've always been around the, the football environment and always playing against older players. And I've always found myself playing better against older players because you have to, you know, test yourself, challenge yourself, and um, you want to fit in. You don't want to just play at your kind of like your same age. And I've always been a striker, I think, up until maybe under 13s, where one game we had no defenders and I went to play at uh, centre back against one of the best young attackers at the time but I believe that I was the best attacker at the time so I thought I've got to stop this kid <laughs> did you dream of having the number nine? Oh, always I think the, the thing when you come through is you, you're obviously the Alan Shearers of the world and um, I think it's one of the things as a young kid you, you go and you try and be like him on the uh, the field with your friends and your dad and stuff and when I got the opportunity I think to go and play centre half against top attackers for you it's an incentive to stop them and when you have a good game against them that was it because I, I relished that kind of opportunity of stopping and being around players who are, you know, going to give us that like, you know, a bit of feistiness and uh, yeah. it drive me a bit, and that definitely did. And I never looked back. At Thirteen years old, uh, been at Newcastle since I was nine. Uh, left school at sixteen, refused to go into the academy, and went straight into the uh, the reserves. And that was the biggest thing for me. I think when I was coming through, it wasn't many young kids getting the opportunity to uh, to play first team. Some would play in the League Cup, um, but then just get lost in the system. You yeah. know, whether they had to go down and start the mm-hmm the trade at League Two and then build themselves back up. But I always had that belief of, I'm going to be here. I'm going to, once I get my chance, I'll be here to stay. I think there was like seven, seven defenders ahead of me at the time. I had the Caldwell brothers, top defenders, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. very, very good. And when I was coming up, learning from them definitely helped me. Because what happens when you leave the, um, well, I left school at 16, going to the reserves. There's not too much coaching individual. You kind of learn when you just get thrown in there. It's like you basically get thrown in and it's like, good luck. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you got to learn quick. You know, the likes of Aaron Hughes, Jonathan Woodgate, being around them kind of players, and it definitely helps you. Gary Speed, one of the guys who I always looked up to. What does he do on a day-to-day basis? How he trains, and um, being around the likes of Alan Shearer, Shea Given, leaders, characters around the dressing room. What they like off the pitch, how they're around the dressing room uh, with the, uh, the foreign players coming in. How they deal with, you know, keeping everybody together, and definitely one person who. I think helped me was uh, Gary Speed and just the kind of belief, the way he trained. And it's probably one of the reasons why I train my players now the way like he did, because he yeah. used to run and the extra work that he used to put in after training was, uh, I used to think, bloody, I'm doing a lot of running here. <laughs> but as a, as a kid, you have to learn it. If you want to survive, you've, you've got to earn your respect. And I'm a big believer in that now. And I think a lot of young kids forget about, you have to earn your stripes. Mm-hmm. It's too much uh, handed to them now, especially young players coming through. Yeah. They're driving the G-Wagons, they've got the Range Rovers, they've got the money coming in at 16 years old. And you, they have to have that hunger. And I think they'll lose that. And that's one of the th- good things I love what I do now. With Gulf United, we're around a lot of hungry players who don't get paid, who enjoy playing for the football club, who want to go to the next level, who use it as a platform. Everyone's got their own little individual story for what they want to do. And, you know, it's great for me to be around everyone just hungry, coming in. Yeah, every everyone's got single. the right motivation. Yeah. It's the best. And to be around that, that's what I love being out here. And I think at the moment, going back, could I go back into the um, the academy and do that? Maybe back home in England, yeah, I probably could do that. 
but I won't be around the hunger mm. that I'm around right yeah. now, which I, I love. And every day, people who know me understand that. And I'm a very intense guy. I love to, to work out even out here four times a week. I'm working out hit classes. Uh, I keep myself busy twice a week doing seven aside games. And the guys are going, you, you didn't have a switch off button. But I've had 21 years. People got to realize 21 years of routine. It doesn't just switch off. No, yeah. it doesn't. And like we said pre before this was when you, well, the one thing I do miss is the Saturday feeling that the nerves, the pre-match, the build of play before the game, um, you know, all that kind of who you're playing against. Because every game is different. And it's all the excitement. And you're playing and you're doing something you love. And for me, I live the dream. And I'm still living the dream now with um, my second job here, which is obviously manager of a football club. But yeah. there's no better feeling. And I think anyone would be lying to you if they says, is there anything else outside of football as a football player? There's nothing. That is the best job yeah. in the world. Just, just want to compare something. So when we had Bakri Sanya on the other week, he, he told us like during his formative years uh, growing up, up until around by the age of 15, he only trained once per week yep. with his team. Mm -hmm. How did that compare with what you were doing around that age where you're training once, twice? Because if you look at Dubai, for example, kids that age are training three, yeah. four times a week plus a match day. So I just want to say from your side, having I, made it. I was very, very lucky. Literally every, every night there's something on. Yeah. You know, I think it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday was Newcastle. Tuesday, Thursday was normally uh, your county. Uh, or your boys club. Then on a Saturday would normally be um, Newcastle. On a Sunday would always be your, your Sunday league yeah. uh, football. And I was very lucky to have my, my parents who would leave work early, come down, uh, get me, take me to train. And by the way, never late. That's one thing, having a, um, parents who were big on that discipline, the values that they had was very drilled in, never be late, always get there early. And I was about 40, 42 to 43 kids from under nine all the way through to under 16s every year I was getting a cut. Parents couldn't get the kids to train. Top quality players, better players than me, but they didn't have that drive. The, the parents couldn't get them there. Unfortunately, for whatever reason that was, I was very fortunate my parents gave me that opportunity. Every game, my dad was there watching. You know, standing in the cold and rain. And you know, I'm, I'm on about it. The, I think it was the month when I'm watching my godson come out and play and there's a little bit of wind here. And I thought, I'm getting bloody soft now. <laughs> and I'm in For Dubai. Sure. I was like, my mom and dad watching the games and the courts and you know, wind, you know, Newcastle's weather like yeah. freezing cold, snow, gale, everything. The North Sea wind. Yeah. <laughs> Cuts through. But as a kid, you don't really appreciate what they had to do. The sacrifices, getting mm. your new boots. Yeah. The, the arguments they probably had about how much you're spending on kit, training, you know, or getting to training. Um, leaving work early, causing problems at work. I didn't understand that as a kid. I'm probably ringing, where are you? Hurry up. And Not knowing, yeah. No, I think mm -hmm. that, that was a very fortunate lad to, to have that and the support that I always had with my dad. And the biggest thing for me when I was young was having a dad who would just say, you win, lose, or draw, I'm proud of you. And that's the worst thing you can say to me. Don't just say that. I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got to go and win now. So no matter what I do, I've got to go there to win. And that's what I obviously say to my Gulf, uh, Gulf United lads, you do whatever it takes to win. And then hopefully yeah. that'll uh, help them in life as well. And not just in football, it's building their characters for what they've been through. Everyone's got their own uh, story and uh, emotion was definitely one of the biggest things that I use. That's been one of the recurring themes of the last few episodes, actually how pivotal parents have been, the sacrifices they've had to make to get their kids to where they are. Sanya, Dale Gordon, they were talking about relocating, going hour and a half drives there and back to get to certain fixtures, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, it's refreshing to hear again that, you know, they're so instrumental in getting you there. And obviously, whether it's praise or how proud you are or mm. um, constructive criticism, you know, it, it all plays a part. I think a lot of parents these days, and I've seen it, you know, firsthand is the parents are so demanding. They want their kid to be the next Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. They're very pushy and they want to kind of just keep getting at them. But you got to realise too much pressure can kill people. And I've seen the negativity that goes into the, on the sidelines and, the referees are getting absolutely hammered. I think the kids, the amount of pressure that's put on them. Um, and even after the game, when they go on that car journey back home, how's the kid feeling? You know, I never had that. Even though I had a bad game as a, as a young kid, but dad would be always just making sure, hey, don't worry about that. Next game, you're going to be unbelievable. He always made me feel amazing. The, he knew when to put his arm around me. Yeah. Similar to manager Sir Bobby Robson. The times where you're not having a good time is arm around you. The times where you think you're getting ahead of yourself, kick up the arse. And uh, that's the good thing, how to man manage your players. And I think it's important in life, and especially parents, your upbringing. You can always tell a player off their upbringing. And I think that goes in modern day football now. And there's a lot of guys who use the herd from family, they, they use the herd from their, their upbringing, whatever it is. Everyone's mm -hmm. got a story, and it's how you kind of present it and how much you want it. And some people use it where they're very vocal and they're very insecure, but that's their kind of way of like getting out of their shell. But when they come away from football, they go back to that kind of insecurity. Yeah. Um, 
but a lot of people need that attention. You just got to understand each character, each player, everyone's different. Yeah. What was your mindset going into? So as a youth player, you mentioned you had a couple years where you played a level up, right? And then at 17 too, you made your debut with the first team. Yeah. Right. So what was your mindset knowing you're about to step into the next level environment where you have players who are older than you, more skilled than you, more experienced than you? Because I know a lot of youth players listening to this right now, they're about to make that jump up to the next level or to an age group up. And I think if you don't go in with the mindset of what is the impact you want to make or how are you going to perform, you might just go with the flow mm-hmm. and then things aren't going to work out how you want them to because it is a big shock kind of making that jump up. So Huge. how is it for you making that jump up to the first team? Two things for me. It was always effort. No one will ever outwork me. And the second one, I always had a chip on my shoulder. I think from 16 years old, I won um, an award at Newcastle um, called the War Jackie Award. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And winning that award, I knew on the night everyone would be in a black tuxedo. And I knew the first team was going to be there, the management, the staff. I had to go in there and make sure they remembered me that night. So I wore a white tuxedo. Mm. Took a big risk. No so way. I remember going in that, before they even announced my name, I remember waiting, going through the doors. And as I'd gone through, I could see them all looking at me. And they would be thinking, who the hell does he think yeah. he is? Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't care. For me, I was like, you will never forget me. You'll rem- definitely remember me. So when I get my picture, I'm not even going to look at you. So I'll take the picture, walk past the table, back to my table with my dad, eat my food, the rest of what was, yeah, get a nice little five course meal or whatever it was. Nice. And I knew for that night, they wouldn't forget about me. And I remember going uh, into training, I think that following season, the uh, the kit man, he remembered it, the physio remembered it. And that day, I think it was, ma- I was on match day, which is a, you go in as a young kid, as a youth kid, I said the youth kid, the reserves, on match day, clean up the kit and the change room, all the spit and everything. And before all of that, I remember getting there early again, seeing the kit man, and he goes to me, oh, you're Steven. I remember seeing the uh, War Jackie Award, well done and all that. And the first thing I said to him, I said, where does Alan Shearer sit? And he pointed to a spot. Now, I, I went over there and I sat down and I went, I'll be sitting here. And he looked at me straight away and he thought, who the hell do you think you are? But that for me was just confidence. That's so powerful for your mindset. Yeah. For, for me, it was just that belief. I'm, I'm here to stay. Like, And this yeah. is, was a young kid coming through. I had a, a season ticket with my old man and Sergio on hall stand. Name on the seat, which he paid about 500 pounds, I think, for the bond. Nice. So that was uh, probably a bit more, you know, fear for, them, for my mom to have. And I said, bloody hell, more money spent yeah. on football. <laughs> but that's how it was for a, father, for a father and a son. That was our relationship. Yeah. And uh, that's obviously my hero now is obviously him and always has been. And just because of them things that he sacrificed, for me when I was young and it's kind of always that kind of don't, don't don't worry about who you're playing against there's just a name at the end of the day you got to go on it's 50-50 it's who wants it more it's your 1v1 100% you've seen so many upsets and I think the biggest uh, explanation I can say is FA Cup the beauty of the FA Cup is you know the underdogs get the opportunity to do it and how many times you see for an upset Yeah. every time I go on that pitch I want an upset I believe I'm the best centre half in that pitch every time I go on there I have to believe that and that's the way I am that's amazing in terms of your first team debut how did that go? Yeah, so I went to, um, I was always in the match uh, day squads and I remember getting an opportunity against Real Mallorca, against uh, Samuel Eto'o. We were leading the game, very comfortable, and Bobby Robson um, puts me on against uh, Samuel Eto'o. How so old were you at the time? I was, uh, uh, what would it be, 18, just 18 turned 18. against Samuel Eto'o. Yeah, so wow. I made my league wow. de- debut at Wickham Wanderers, so I was 17 there, and then I come back and I was waiting for my opportunity, yep. and then I got it against Real Mallorca. Played that uh, came on, sorry, that game. And then the week after was uh, Bolton Wanderers away. I remember going into Bolton Wanderers and I was thinking, I think I'm going to start today because there's still a few injuries. And then the team sheet comes up and you see yourself uh, playing it right back. Within the first five minutes of the game, ball comes over, went ahead of back to Shea Given on the corner of the 18-yard box. Got a very clever nudge off uh, Pedersen, which is a fair one, just very clever. And he's uh, nudged his, missed the header. And he's turned and hit the ball over my head, over Shea Gillen's head. Went one nil. So we ended up losing the game. Is that Camps Pedersen? It was, yeah. Oh, he always annoyed me. This is your your (laughs) debut. Obviously, yeah, that was a debut. So that was one nil. And I didn't get an opportunity from that because everyone came back fit. So I had to wait for so long. And I remember Graham Souness got the uh, the job after. Mm. And he'd watch the reserve sessions and he'd watch your training. He was always like saying, oh, you you look a player, but are you a player? I want to see if you can handle it. St. James Park, how do you deal with 52,000 fans? Mm. And we played Everton and uh, there was an injury before the, uh, I think on the Friday night. I turned up on the Saturday and he said, I need to speak to you. So I spoke to him, he goes, you're going to play today at right back. And already got little visions of what happened to Bolton. Yeah. As a young kid, I thought that this is an opportunity. Parents didn't even think I'd be on the uh, starting lineup. 
and my old man ends up buying two, two tickets for mum and dad. So I basically give our tickets away. Um, and yeah, I played against Kevin Kilban. First five, ten minutes, I've gone in there and uh, went hard. Felt the roar from the fans and that was it for me. This is where, this is mm. my career starting. Yeah, you here. feed off that. And mm. that was the best uh, feeling I had and everything that game went went great. And I just had so much energy. It was just the best feeling and I never looked back from that day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one big thing is after that, I guess in your debut in a way, it's a mistake that you made and a lot of players, they get down after a big moment <laughs> yeah. like that. But it goes back to what you said earlier about the confidence mm -hmm. and the backing yourself. And you have to be willing to believe in yourself and that you're going to get back up and 100%. you're going to have great performances. And that's eventually what led you to that good performance that you had, which then you yeah. built momentum and kept going on. Well, I think there's a lot of people, you guys may know a lot of players, there's people who probably relate to this. They've been in situations where they get a chance. It yeah. goes wrong. You are to blame. You have to accept that. And it's kind of like, it was kind of sugar-coated after the game. Bobby Robson was kind of saying, oh, he's a young boy. Protect him and this, that, and the other. But it was a good learning curve. And I think, how do you react from that? Because it's never all, you know, for a footballer, it's, it is like a roller coaster ride. But you just have to enjoy that ride. You're going to get highs, your lows. And I always tell the boys now, you know, don't get too high and don't get too low. If you can see that middle ground, you're laughing. But uh, a lot of people beat themselves up and they overthink and they, they panic. They've been doing football all their life, but they'll still question themselves on match day. Even now, professional footballers in the Premier League will question driving to the game that whether through the social media, people overthink things and, um, you know, fans, we stop doing this, stop doing that. That's how a lot of players will look at them and go, oh, social media saying, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. I need to please the fans. You just need to do what you're good at. Are you grateful that social media wasn't such a big hit during massively, your playing day? Massively, yeah. I actually, would it have I, I, yeah, affected I, you? I wouldn't have been on it, to be fair. I wouldn't want to, because I, I, I see so many people coming after training, they're on the, uh, the, the social media, and it's a big platform, and I think it's a good way to relate to fans. But I think with the modern day football, I think it's, uh, it cannot be healthy at times where things aren't going well for you. I think you'll overthink uh, think things, you'll do things that you're not used to, you're probably trying too hard. And that's the biggest thing, just feeling relaxed and going out there with confidence. Confidence is the biggest thing in football. I think when you go out there and you're playing free, there's no better feeling. That's why I always go back to when I was 18. I had no fear. I'd go in there with it. I'm going into a challenge to hurt someone. I didn't care. I was there to win a game and I'd do whatever it takes to win the game. And that's just how I was. I put myself in front of it, smashed my face. So I didn't care. It was just like, I'm going to win and that's it. I think you nailed it with the roller coaster analogy, by the way, because football really is this journey of like a lot of ups and downs. And oftentimes with a lot of players, you only get to see the highlights mm -hmm. and the ups. But every single player has had the downs. Mm -hmm. And what really makes your journey is how are you going to react in those mm -hmm. downs? Are you still going to be confident? Are you still going to work hard? Are you still going to keep going and stay persistent? Yeah. And if you're willing to get through those downs, that's when you have you know, the great moments in your career. Yeah, it's like when I was 80 years old, playing probably for the team that was a year above me. And I was on the bench every week, going to the games on the bench, never getting any minutes because the manager's son was always playing in my position. So I never get any game time. And I remember the, the amount of crying. I was always, always beating myself up thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, this, that, and the other. But still, who's there? Your dad picking you up, taking you on the pitch after just to make you feel good again. You know, it was always going to the games, reenact how they scored the goals, making you feel good following week on the bench again you do question yourself I had a good year of that never playing then I moved to a uh, football club Cramlin Juniors had one training session and uh, Newcastle Scout was there ever since that that time it was just a matter of time I'd had one good training session that's all it was when a scout was there so you never know who's watching is the biggest yeah, thing yeah you made it count yeah it was, it was the biggest thing and I remember one of our first games as an under nine uh, Newcastle School of Excellence was against Middlesbrough we got beaten 9-0 that game, 9-0, right. you play like three, I don't know what it was, 25 or 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. We got beat 9-0. Uh, and uh, I remember coming in the following uh, week and John Carver was the uh, academy director at the time. And he just says, listen, what's the difference between him? So he's pointing to me and he says, he's grown spirit. So he's going through your grown spirit. And a lot of people have different kind of things that they're going through and some have family problems, but you have to understand what they're going through. And I think he identifies certain things and he had um, the... the Paul Winsper at the time was the first team fitness guy. So he worked with me doing some coordination stuff for Corns and having someone taking the time out to do that kind of stuff helped me massively. And I think I'm very lucky with the people who I um, was surrounded with that definitely helped me on my journey because I started off, it wasn't all happy and, and all roses. You know, you're going to have to go through the, um, the disappointments. But I think that shapes you as a character. You know, you, you, you've seen what, Footballs are like, you're going to get all the people behind the scenes. The amount of times I think footballers now with the agents, the people behind the scenes, a manager might like it, but the sporting director doesn't. 
the people behind the analysis are saying too many injuries, like Money Ball, well, I don't know about this guy. Yeah. Someone could kill your dream or kill your chance of moving. And that's the kind of thing that's going on now. Football's probably 25 voices in the uh, Monday morning meetings now. We're probably, um, you know, sitting here now, but knowing that in Newcastle, in, I don't know, the whole of the Premier League, the analysis that goes behind it, that's why they get paid the big bucks because the, it's a pressure, pressure job. If you don't get your results, you're gone. And uh, I think for footballers now, is there's that much, there's not many friends in football where I say within two or three years that the player comes in, player goes, you get you forget about them. It becomes quite like selfish. You know, you got to you got to graft. If you don't graft, you're out. And that's where it's, it's like it's a revolving door. And um, yeah, sink or swim. Cutthroat. Yeah, it is. And it just you have to deal with it. And that's the uh, the business we're in. But yeah, I loved it. I think for me, getting involved there, you see so many generations of players and. You want to. You got to perform to stay. And I think being around in Newcastle in my generations was uh, was something special. How did you react to what happened to Aston Villa early on in your career? That's probably the hardest thing I had to deal with. I think the the first uh, relegation that yep. was the uh, the hardest thing, uh, especially the players that we had at the time. If you look at the uh, the team we had, everyone was telling me you ain't going to go down. The team's too good. But the problem is individually very good. But if you don't play as a team. This is what happens and it's, you know, you're never too good. And you stuck around for that. Was there ever a time where you thought, because I'm sure opportunities came about throughout your career about chances to leave Newcastle. Because mm-hmm. um, there were points where you were in the England fold and England set up as well. You never quite made it for yep. starting for England. Is, is that a regret? Do you think if you hadn't stuck with Newcastle and maybe moved on elsewhere, you might have had a, a better chance to start or make it make a start for England? No, I think it's just the, the generation I had. If what you got to realise is John Terry, yeah. Rio Ferdinand. There was like the Ledley Kings. There was um, Jimmy Carragher, uh, Julian Lescott. Saul Campbell. Saul Campbell. There was so many top, top centre-halves. That was the kind of the golden generation back then, what people call yeah. it. I was just look, uh, unlucky to be born in my era, I think, at the time <laughs> with that amount of quality. But it was a thing where, yeah, I was England under 21 captain. Um had an opportunity to leave. But then obviously when we went down, there was an opportunity to go. And when I was relegated, I had to be in that team to bring us back up. There was no chance I could leave um, my hometown club yeah. relegated and just leave like that. For me, it meant more. So that's one of the reasons why I stuck around. And uh, I'm glad a lot of players did to get us back up. Well, I'm glad you did, because as I said before, we got signed Newcastle frame shirts, signed by the whole squad that won the championship that year. So Unbelievable. Yeah, to have your signature on that makes, it, makes a difference <laughs> for us. I hope I haven't devalued it, so I'll be all right. Because <laughs> the first time we were meant to have it as a prop on one of these walls, but it obliterated in the in the elevator getting it up here. So um, oh, thanks yeah. to Sahel for that. Now, we've got another one because it was our 18th birthday at the time, and you got one and I got one, so I've got one in pristine condition. So Brilliant. That's actually worth something. But to be fair, I'm glad you did, because we yeah. always want to know whose shirt it was because I'm hoping they're much more shirts. I want to see a S. Taylor on the back of it. Yeah. yeah. That'd be class. No, yeah. If it smelled bad, it'd probably Ryan Taylor, but uh, this was, was probably <laughs> my fault. Sure, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, he was down there, actually, for the for the game yesterday. He was in yeah. the sort of the fan zones yeah. with Shola, mm-hmm. I saw as well. So, no, it's really good that the ex-players are still really very much involved. Tim Krull was down there as well, I saw. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's really, really good. What did it take to get back to the Prem that year? I think the uh, the belief, the best thing I remember coming back after the uh, the summer was the hurt. And I think for everybody there, everyone had their own like agenda. Whether some people coming to the end of their career, some people wanted to get a move. Um, so obviously myself was involved in the relegation, which was the hurt. I think everyone had their own little piece of what, you know, what it means to them. And we had a group of guys that probably came together more in our last pre-season game which was against Lynn Orient and we got beat mm. I think it was 7-0 seven, yeah. seven it was a big wow. big loss big big loss going into the first game of the season and that's probably the best thing because when we lost that game we had a big meeting team meeting on the Monday put your hand up if you want to leave and there's a few that didn't want to be there and they only got rid of them um, but that just brought us closer together because we went through there every team is like it's a cup final for them so you know if you stay in the game till 70 minutes we'll win because of our fitness and we just we backed ourselves and how fit we were as a, as a group and uh, the amount of team bonding sessions we do we, d- we were just together and I think that was the biggest thing that got us through that league was the togetherness which obviously when you do get promotion the next year is the difficult one you don't want to come back down so that was the one can we invest stay there and survive that season which is important not not even think about Europe it was all about just survive then next the following year then you kick on get your players and get back to hopefully European football and the, those European nights which are special and I think going from the championship getting rid of the players who were uh, you know not really fighting for the football club weren't there for the right th- 
right reasons. Yeah, exactly. Maybe for the money they were there, but I think a lot from then it was brilliant. I think for Newcastle, they probably need that the transition from that to us moving forward. Chris Hutton, which I thought did a fantastic job, um, probably doesn't get the credit that he actually deserves. He was unbelievable with the players, his man management, Absolutely. and the way he dealt with the fans. I thought he was very good. Um, but yeah, I think from then, and obviously the European days started to come back again. I'll never forget the the Anzi, um, the Russian team we played yeah, yeah. at St. James Park 1-0. One of my best experiences that, winning 1-0, but the atmosphere that game was unbelievable. What did he say scored the winner, didn't he? Papi Cissé. Yeah. Was Papi Eto'o in that game as well? Eto'o and William, remember? Then William, yeah. yeah they got their say, moves so obviously after that. to go up against Eto'o again. Exactly. So <laughs> that, that actually, I remember talking to him about that and uh, got his share from that as well. Oh, so nice. how uh, football happens, it's like yeah. swings and roundabouts. But for me, the moment against Real Mallorca, and I remember like two minutes ago, I've literally just stood next to Eto'o. I thought, I'm going to have this kid's shirt, 100%. <laughs> and uh, once I got his shirt, I did a big mistake by giving him my shirt, which I think was number 38 at the time. He's probably uses it as like a cleaner around yeah. the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His has gone framed in the games room straight away. <laughs> Fair enough. Those are great times, the European football, and it's, hopefully it's not too long till... Well, that's Newcastle. Newcastle. It, that's the biggest thing, and people probably don't understand, but in Newcastle, it's a football city. And when you have them European nights on a Thursday night, they're incredible. Honestly, that's the everyone. You go to the, um, the supermarket, and the, the grandmas in there are giving you all sorts of sticks. Just make sure you bloody win. And it's just great to have that kind of, um, you know, the love around the whole city. Everywhere you go, everyone's talking about football. And that is just Newcastle. That's our identity, really. Yeah. You've talked, you've mentioned a few managers. So Bobby Robson, Chris Hewton, Graeme Souness. You've played under a lot of Newcastle managers. Mm -hmm. What kind of impacts have each of them made or who had the most impact on your career? I think everyone's different. Everyone brings a different style to them. Um, obviously, Kevin Keegan, the way his man management was, is the feel-good factor. I think... Sir Bobby Robson with his kind of, you know, the, the grander figure that you don't want to let him down. I think just having him in a room, he doesn't really need to say anything. I think just having him in the room, you just want to fight for him, you want to play for him. And that's the biggest thing. Even today's, in this uh, modern day football, if a player is willing to fight for the manager, you sh I think it shows in the pitch. Um, I was very fortunate to be around that. Even with Graham Souness when he came in, his probably role was more to get rid of the the egos, the kind of the players in there at the time. If you've seen how many players he had to get rid of, um, but he was very hard, very hard on me as a, as, a, as a kid. But I relished that. You know, Bobby Robson was very good because he knew how to handle me. There was times where I believed I should be playing, so I'd knock on his door, and he could see the anger that that I wasn't happy. And before I even could get my words out, he'd already be talking about my family. How's your mom and dad doing? How's your dad? He's an ex-police. Oh, this, that, and the other. And by the time I left the meeting, I got no words out. He's got his arm around me, walking down the corridor. I remember the first team players saying, "Hey, I see you got your got your, uh, your words out." And it just <laughs> killed me. It's just how he knew how I was wasn't happy, and he knew how to switch it around. And for me, it was the emotion, and uh, you just didn't want to let him down. For me, that was the biggest thing in training and in games. Even though sometimes in training you have, you've got an injury, you don't want to tell the physios because you want to keep playing. You don't want to uh, be in the physio room and the manager's walking past and he sees you. It's that look of not even saying anything. That hurt me more than anything. Any manager that just looked at you but didn't say anything, that was that, that was enough for me. And I was like, oh, just say something. Don't just look at me. <laughs> just say something. But the reaction from that and probably one of the biggest guys uh, that helped me probably get to that first team, um, understanding um, what it meant to deal with that, the anger of uh, first team football, the the winning mentality was Alan Irvin. I was under 17s and, and the, he was the academy director. Um, you know, a Scotsman, that angry Scotsman voice. When he goes angry, even his standards. We went through the season, I think, unbeaten. But even coming in half time 2 0 up, he's going off it because you might be dropping your standards. And that yeah. was him just going hard at me. And I'm looking around the rest of the, uh, the dressing room. I thought we were having a pretty good game. He would just batter me. But he knew how to just keep you level headed. Didn't want you to get big time. There was always 1% more. Always, and I think that was the biggest thing, even in training. He always knew that, even if you have a good time, if you're doing better than probably the rest of them, he'd always hammer you and single you out and to make you just ground you. And that's the, probably the best thing that, that happened to me as a young kid, is just getting having that kind of guy do that. Um, for example, we had a game one time and my right back got um, smashed, uh, went off the pitch, and I remember the kid who did it. So I've just gone and just smashed the kid. Straight away, he brought me off in front of the camera and just went through me. And it was just, don't let your emotion take over the game. Play yeah. your game. There's going to be moments in your career that will happen where you'll see one of your friends, your teammates. You can't get involved in that kind of stuff. You have to play your, your game because that's probably what his, his job was to do, to do that. And it was kind of a learning curve and you have to learn different aspects of uh, how football is. The, when you're winning 1-0, when you're losing 1-0, 
Uh, when you're drawn, and that's what we try and teach the players now at Golf United. We have like games where you're winning, you're losing, you're drawn. How do you deal with that kind of, you know, the game management? Times get the ball in the box. It's like Alex Ferguson. The amount of times where they're behind, you always believe Fergie time. Yeah. But he just went for like a 4-4-2, ball in the box, make teams defend. And you'll always get chances and it doesn't have to be all ticky-tacky. Um, you know, you have to play out from the back every time and everyone's got this persona now, the Pep Guardiola, we've got to be playing like Barcelona, we've got to be playing like Manchester City or Arteta now at Arsenal. Mm-hmm. You, it's all about your squad that you've got, the players you've got. And you've got to do like, I think Sean Dyche hit the nail on the head of Burnley. He got results for years with a team he's got, no budget. He understand the team that he has, what the strengths was and stuck to it. And I think that's the modern day footballer now is don't get caught up in playing a different way that you're not used to. Stick to your basics. If you do the basics well, it'll go, it'll go a long way for you. And in terms of your management style, if you were to compare to one of the coaches that you worked under, who do you think you would relate most to? Um, I think probably, I think Chris Hutton. I think he always that the feel good factor with the group, um, understanding your players. I would never isolate my players. I think on the pitch, I'm always trying to protect them. And um, the intensity and going into detail before the game is just to make sure everyone understands individual, going around every player before we go out there. Do you know your role? This is what we need to do. This is how the team shape's going to be. This is the, the team. I'm expecting him to do this. You'll do this. I want everyone to have that bit of detail of animations. And I was very visual. So when sh- someone showed me visual, I knew it. If you're just talking to me and trying to tell me, sometimes I might not. Yeah, I'm the same. Mm-hmm. But I need visual. So when I have like animations and I see three points, that's enough for me. Three yeah. little options, that's it. That's all I need. I think you'd love playing under Eddie Howe. I think he's very yeah. similar in that sort of sense to Chris Hutton. I think an 18-year-old Stephen Taylor would have loved that. I think yeah. 100% would have been loving the intensity, the way he is as a manager. Because I'm hearing from the likes of the players there now, how intense he is, the detail he goes into is, is huge. Yeah. We bumped into Chris Hutton actually at Gateshead Stadium. It was a fixture, Gateshead versus Newcastle under 21s. I think uh, it, under 21s, yeah, you're right. Yeah, absolute gentleman. He had all the time for three, like, what were we, 18, 19 year old yeah. at the time? He had all the time for us. He took us aside and spoke to us. Uh, absolute gentleman. Incredible so can, guy. No, yeah. as, as, a, as a player at the time, though, it was a nightmare because after games, when you're on the bus and you want to leave, he's in the, he's speaking every fan. He's listening yeah, yeah, yeah. to <laughs> on the bus. And let's Am go. I right in saying he's the Garner <laughs> manager now? That's right, yeah. He's got yeah. a job, yeah. He's done well because what I've seen recently is he's had a lot of conversations behind closed doors with players who have. Uh, dual allegiance or citizenship I can't remember the names off the top of my head but players who are in the England setup for example who yeah. have Ghanaian descent like Hudson Odoi maybe yeah I think he was one of them there's a lot and I think in a year, year or two time I think whatever the next African competition I think Ghana are huge favourites mm-hmm. especially yeah, with Hutton so at the helm but I think that ended too too early I know Alan, was it Alan Pardew came in straight after Hutton because Hutton left in around about the December of the season yeah, yeah, after the right, championship yeah. Um, and it was Pardew who took yep. over, wasn't it? What was your because European football back under Pardew? What was what was he like? Yeah, I think at first the fans didn't really buy into it. I think they were thinking he was too well connected from London with the Mike Ashley scenario. But listen, he was did there well. any truth in that? I don't think so. I, don't, no. I think if when he came, he was under pressure a little bit from the start. But I thought with European football, we had a great chance, especially the night against Benfica, and um, we had a great year. We finished fifth. We were top of the league, I think, till December. And then we started having a lot of injuries. I ended up rupturing my Achilles. Uh, we had a few hamstrings, a few uh, knee injuries. Um, but going into the games there, we had that belief. We had Hatan Ben Arfes, yeah, Papasise. front three. Yeah, yeah. Demba Bar. Demba Bar, Papasise. But that put, honestly, you can see people like Chelsea's back in office. And when you've got someone like Ben Arfa, who's a maverick, uh, you've got Johan Kabai, who played in front of me with Czech Teodi. It was uh, me and Colachini. We had Danny Simpson and uh, we had Ryan Jose, Taylor or yeah. Jose Enrique. Yeah. And it was just, we had a great... I think 11 there where we knew our roles and we were just consistent every week. Same team, going out there, getting your results. And we believe we can win every game. I remember going into games believing that this team who we're playing against, they don't want it today. And when you've got Ben Arthur running at you, who takes about three or four players out the game. So I was going to ask specifically about him because obviously like he created some amazing memories. And I think, albeit he didn't maybe have the, the psychological side to get him to where he could have been, before he had all the technical talent in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, what was your experience working with someone of of his ilk? You know, maybe he didn't track back as much as he. But did you leave him to do it? You know, we we sacrificed that, and we understand the player that he was. Is we understand there's games where we're going to be under the cosh. It'll feel like we're a man down because he's not getting back. But we always knew, give him the ball at any one time, he can go and change the game. So we, as a team, sacrificed that. We understood our players, and I think that's one of the game management. I think um, even with uh, Rio Ferdinand. 
I think early stages of Cristiano Ronaldo's career at Man United where there was games where he wasn't tracking back, similar sort of scenario to Ben Arthur, but he knew, he said, at times, this guy's, you know, he's going to change the game for us, which he obviously did a lot. It's like St. Maximan now, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Give him that freedom and he can cause dangerous situations. Oh, he's an incredible player. Probably one of the best one, uh, 1v1 attackers in, in the Premier League. And yeah. I think probably even around the world, you give him the ball and... Uh, How would you deal with him? You just got to go and absolutely smash him. Put yeah. him up the game. <laughs> I think you got to take a yellow card and say, hopefully he gets off the pitch and uh, he's in the ambulance <laughs> off to the hospital. But uh, that's the only way I think you can stop him. Yeah, he's a powerful player, unpredictable. Sometimes it, it might seem that he might not know what he's doing at times, but he has such control. The ball never leaves his feet, but he's so left-footed, right-footed. And I think he's a big game player. Obviously, yeah. we saw how he was against Man City. I thought he played well last night. I know we might talk about that. Maybe we'll avoid that conversation. I don't know. <laughs> but I think... Um, he, he's someone that you have to afford freedom to. Yeah. I know that as part of Howell's system, you have Almiron and Isaac and Wilson pressing like mad. And then you've got your midfielders backing them up. But I think if we can afford some freedom and let him save his energy for those long bursting runs forward and taking three, four players and jinking his way into the box, it's fine. But I think there is an element after the World Cup, especially of predictability, like I said before, doubling up on him, get three players out wide, you know, the trip, uh, trippier Almiron combination, for example, that Bruno threw, but I think, yeah. you know, certain things are getting found out, but uh, yeah, certainly I think, I think he's a big part of our future if, if we're to make European football. Yeah, no, it worked well. I think when we finished fifth that year, I remember with Pardew for what he was, you know, what he gave that year was a team that we hit teams in the counter a lot. But the following year, I remember, he, I think he went and watched the, I don't know if it was the European Championships, he watched Italy. And what he tried to do for us then was get our wing backs, uh, full backs, sorry, going up and down, which didn't suit our system, which left us very exposed at the back. Mm -hmm. Made Czech, uh, Tioti doing a lot more running. So he was getting out of position a lot more. Whereas we were more solid the previous year when teams were coming at us. We found a lot of uh, success with that because of the players that we had in the transition with Denver Bar, Papi Cissé and Ben Arthur. I think if we stuck to that kind of system and the players and we kept the players, we didn't let our star players leave. I think Newcastle could have overtook Tottenham in the uh, the European from many years after that as well because we should have kicked on from there. I thought that's when Modric and Bale were obviously at yeah. Tottenham. But I do believe we could have really kicked on if we kept the players and invested. Just talking of Tiote, that 4-4 against Arsenal, what was your emotions like in the oh, final stages of that game? Not, not just that game, it was just the way he was as a, as a player. Every day he trained and when, he, when he's not on your side, oh my God, he's a nightmare. All he, I've heard is that he, he trained as if he played. He did. And it's just that like, when you get like a collision with him on you know, his knee and you think, oh, just leave us alone. <laughs> just leave us alone. You're coming in with a dead leg. The amount of players are coming and the dead legs and they'll go in the physio room. Was that check? Do you already ask check? <laughs> it's all the time. And he comes back, what happened? And you just like, you just like, what happened? You've just absolutely dismantled me. That's what's happened. You know what I mean? So like, back in the physio room. Back in the physio room. But as a guy, when you scored the goal not just that his every every game the intensity he brung 100% for Newcastle never give up and that's why the fans loved him as well and I think he can show that as well how he was as a person a great person to be around the dressing room and um, you need that different characters and uh, we were very lucky with the, with the uh, squad that we had there oh, amazing in terms of your goal scoring record for Newcastle how was it always feeling at, like scoring at St James's yeah the best I think scoring at the Gallagher end first um, in the Intertoto Cup the final game there Celta Vigo my first goal I ran like Forrest Gump all the way from the corner flag past the dugout couldn't believe I it. always remember that nickname oh, I, could never, <laughs> I could never forget it it was just literally what do you do when you score a goal it's just like just go crazy I was saying to Josh before and so my granddad always said to us when Stephen Taylor scores you need to lock the gates of St James because he, he doesn't know where he's going he's going to run out the <laughs> stadium running. but I'll be honest with you it was, I think it was the 86th minute there and I remember running past and as I got back I was absolutely blowing and the ball kept coming my way I just had to just kick it I think I toe poked a few I was like listen I'm out of the game now. No, just switch it. Just switch it. <laughs> switch the game. But no, what a feel. I think scores uh, the surge on Hall end where me and my dad had the season tickets. So that always meant more to me there. Yeah. Um, obviously the Gallagher end um, was the most popular one with obviously Alan Shearer and yeah. all everyone always talks about those goals and um, the best feeling. Yeah, you can't, you can't ever um, get away from that. What's your thoughts on the stadium expansion? Obviously they've just secured the land behind the, um, where the strawberry pub was. I think a good, I, I would wish it would happen when I was playing. I wish it could be all the way around like the Surgeon Hall, all the way yeah, around the stadium. Yeah. I, think look, yeah, I think it looked phenomenal. It's iconic in the city of Newcastle. You go around there, it's in the middle there. That's the best thing about with Newcastle compared to all these other 
football clubs in England. Yeah, it's perched on top of the hill. Yeah. You can see it from everywhere. Yeah, I'm it's glad like the church. developments weren't going to go ahead or they yeah, did a U-turn on those decisions. But there was that season where you scored three goals in the final three games of the season, wasn't it? Yeah, it made history there. They said that it's never been done before um, where you've scored consistent games, defender. I thought I've got to do this, so I was literally just uh, I was asking for. <laughs> so it blockers. was on your mind before it happened. No, because I, I wanted to do it. I remember I was getting chances, but it was just I wasn't getting. I was I was probably blocking. I think previously I was blocking quite a bit instead of actually going and attack it and getting someone to block for me. And when I got my first one, I thought I've got to go for it now. And uh, it happened. I think my last one was against West Brom. So I scored past Chelsea. The Chelsea, first I remember. One. Yeah. Um, so was this three in a row? Three, three in a row. Yeah. yeah. Final three games of the season. Wow. It was the last game of the season. Was against West Brom, and I thought I've got to do it here. Yeah. And I remember the ball just bounced in the box. I just stayed around the six yard <laughs> box, and I thought just someone <laughs> hit it my way, and there's just a little tap in. So to do that there was was good for me. But always getting chances. Always uh, whether it's a head back across, and yeah, uh, I enjoyed the kind of you know going for corners, free kicks, even thrones and. Um, yeah, and, and always like in my career, wherever I went, I scored, so it was good. There probably a similar feeling when Dan Byrne scored that cup goal as well. That, like, as a local player scoring for your club, there must be no better feeling. We'll look at him after the game in the change room with his dance. dance I think yeah. that's says <laughs> it all. But that's the, the the love I think Newcastle fans will have for Dan Byrne as a as a guy and as a player. That just speaks volumes. I think um, he shows how much it means to play for Newcastle United. And you know, every every game he plays, he's unbelievable. People wouldn't think someone who's uh, nine foot tall can play at left back, <laughs> but he's uh, he's given them people who are you know humongously tall they can play there. But he's he's a phenomenal player, and uh, I think he's a, he's a leader as well, which which helps. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny with that goal. Obviously, he he was he would be the first person to admit he he never thought he would have scored, but obviously he jinked his way past three or four players, slots it in, yeah. and then he didn't know what celebration to go for. He's <laughs> like he said himself, it's like playing FIFA and spamming the celebration buttons. He yeah. was going through all sorts, but um, ended up being a knee slide, wasn't it? Knee slide, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah brave one. But uh, certainly for someone of his height. He, he is a very technical player. He's good. And yeah. I think, obviously, we, we bought him probably primarily to play as centre-back, but mm -hmm. he's transitioned left-back with target being out. And he's done well. Obviously, yeah. in that game, he made a lot of surges, uh, you know, bombing forward and everything, and he's capable I for sure. I played against him when he was at Wigan, and even Wigan on the ball uh, for a big man. He had great feet you know, on the ball, very comfortable. Uh, he got up and down there as well. He played like in the left side of a three, and yeah, he was a machine. I remember the side attacking the ball, I thought. Yeah, he's definitely got a bit, and obviously it didn't uh, didn't take him long until he's playing the Premier League football. Yeah. I still think that you're obviously considering his height and the height difference. Without question, you're a better header of the ball than he is, though. For his size, I think he should be better in the box than he currently is. He had a close chance last night, didn't he? Went wide yeah. of the post. Yeah, sure. Um, Who's the best centre back partner you had? Uh, obviously, I like playing with Jonathan Woodgate. Was my first one. Yeah. Uh, for me, he was the kind of guy who teached us for about two years. I think from. Uh, when I was coming out of school in there, it was just that what he was doing, I just watched him in Newcastle before he went to Real Madrid. And that was the best thing for me to have someone like him. And then obviously with Colaccini, yeah. we had the successful years with the, the European years and uh, finishing fifth. But playing with uh, Colo was, uh, was was brilliant. He was like a Rolls Royce I think, yeah. on the ball. I had to do his dirty work with all the uh, physical stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I think you complimented each other very well because yeah. obviously... Not to do you a disservice, yeah. but I think he was very good on the ball and, very you know, good. very silky, very technical. And you offered that, you know, balance with the physical side of yeah. things and, you know, the tenacity in 1v1 situations, for yeah. example. Yeah, you had to. I think there's some games where it would be, you know, it's very ugly games where you play against Bolton, Stoke City, them nights on a Monday night, you've got to go, you got to do that bit extra. And sometimes you might, you might feel they're going to play a lot more balls on them. So you've got to kind of switch up now and again. And uh, it's just about helping each other out. I think that's the biggest partnership you've got to do in, in the games. And, find your, your strengths and stick to your strengths. A lot of people always think, ah, oh, weakness has got, I can't do this. Just stick to your strengths. I think that's the biggest thing for a footballer. Don't overthink. And uh, partnerships, you've got to build a partnership early. What's he good at, what's he not? I'll just accommodate that. In terms of playing under different captains, obviously Colaccini is probably quite a, a quiet, I don't know, on, on the pitch, it looks quite a, a quiet figure. I would mm -hmm. say let the football do his talking. Like, led yeah. by example. Led by example, but then you have people like Kevin Nolan who might be a bit more outspoken. So mm -hmm. what kind of captain... Did you like to play under? For me, it was, um, well, I think Shearer was the biggest one because it was that belief. As soon as he's, his name's in the team sheet, you just believe you're going to win. I think it's just his aura around the place. Yeah. I think uh, he didn't have to say too much before the games. Uh, just his presence was enough. And I think the dressing room that we had, uh, it was all leaders. I think going back from the, I'm big on the core. So obviously with Shea Given, Woodgate, Gary Speed, Shearer, the leaders, the characters that they were. Um, yeah, it was just, you're going out there with men. 
And I think that you want to be like that as well. So yeah. when you see the people around you, you want to rub shoulders with that and you want to become that. That's amazing. I want to break it up just with a, a, a quick question. It's going to be a scenario where you have three players. Yep. All players you've played with. Mm -hmm. And you have to decide, you have to start one in your squad. Yep. Bench one and sell one. Okay. okay. All midfielders, you have to start, bench or sell Kabai, Nolan or Barton. So that's Johan Kabai, Kevin Nolan and Joey Barton. I'd probably start, uh, let's start Joey Barton. Okay. Uh, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll start Kevin Nolan, uh, bench Joey Barton, I'll sell uh, Johan Kabai. You'll get, you'll get money for Johan Kabai. That's what, was it 30 I, million from Yeah, I think that's the PSG. one. I think Joey Barton would be a good one to bring on and the impact that he would give us, but Kevin Nolan's presence, the leadership he's got, but Kabai's always going to be one out of them three that will get me the money. Yeah. No, really good. I really like that. I don't think I would argue with that too much. To be fair, I agree with the with selling Kabai as well. We actually he actually finished his career off in in Al Nasser mm -hmm. in Al Nasser yeah, here yeah. as well. We bump, well, I bumped into him actually as well. But now he's a I think a youth coach or academy coach in PSG, so he's still in and around the similar, yeah. similar team. Yeah, I have a question actually, more of a player's perspective, Stevie. Yeah. So you've played at the highest level like fifteen plus years, mm -hmm. coaching now too. If you went back to 17, 18 year old self. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you tell your younger self? What's something you wish you knew that now, like the 15 years of being at the highest level, you kind of have this experience. If you could go back to that moment, yeah. what would that piece of information be? Probably I'd, I'd train harder than I play. I wouldn't okay. be wrapped up in cotton wool. Um, and I would do, I think my nutrition, I think definitely look after that better. I think mm -hmm. back in the day there was, especially the training ground, the, the food is not as detailed as it is now. I think a lot of players are getting blood tests that seeing what your, what your actual foods are and all that, the detail that goes in behind the scenes. Um, and I think in Newcastle, we kind of had managers and physios or whatever it was who tried probably to protect you. So you go in, in the sessions and maybe they're trying to bring you out of the session. You know, don't do too much coming. I'll probably go and I'd have to train the way my body was. I had to go in there and train harder. Mm. So I noticed that in the latter stages of my career, I went to Portland Timbers. And they didn't care about my career at Newcastle. They said, listen, yeah, you played for Newcastle. You're here now, but you're going to train harder than you play. And it actually helped me prolong my career that. Because going out to the MLS was the intensity and training I was doing way more than I would ever do in Newcastle. And that was nearly every day. I don't think I had many days off in uh, in Portland. So when I came back from that, I had about three, uh, three months off before Ipswich. Uh, broke down with a hamstring. Um, and that was kind of a, a big wake-up call because I had to take a step back to move forward. And I remember going to Peterborough, 52 games. Best thing I ever did. You know, I really did, loved it. Um, fantastic football club. And it gave me a platform of a lot of people wouldn't touch you. With the injuries I've had, two ruptured Achilles, yeah. two dislocated shoulders, bicep tendon yeah. rupture. What you've got to realize, you're going around a table with guys from, you know, who are out of university, all the stats and stuff, saying I wouldn't touch them. He's had too many injuries. You can get a younger player who can do this, more of a resale value. So then you're kind of like a war horse. You're waiting for someone to take a hit on you and who, who, who's going to take a hit? And for me, it was a team, Wellington Phoenix in New Zealand. And honestly, the reason why I went there, I'm probably next to nothing, is to show the love of that kind of like, they went all out and um, the, the literally, it was amazing. Instead of all these other clubs that were just like, oh, we'll, we'll see, we're waiting for another player, we'll, we'll have a look at it. The fact is they were like warning you straight away. That was it for me. That was enough. Mm -hmm. Going there, guaranteed to play every single game. I yeah. think, yeah, coming to what, 32, 33 years old, you want to go and you want to play. You were captain there as well, weren't you? Yeah, captain went with Phoenix and we made history out there finishing third where the club for 13 years has been like a punching bag at the bottom of the table. <laughs> <laughs> but at least the owner of that, well, first two years, he allowed me to, to bring like, say, Gary Hooper across and... Um, David Ball, who played at Fleetwood and um, started off his, his youth development in Manchester City. But we had some good players. And I think as me, when I was coming through the ranks there, I was, I was so hungry and I would probably play injured a lot of the games as well. I probably now, if I was going back, I probably wouldn't have played in games because it might have impacted us further down yeah. my career. But I just thought of the old school Terry Butcher mentality, John Terry mentality, you just get out on that pitch. And you didn't want to let your team down. Even when Shearer used to walk past, you don't want to say you're injured. You yeah. say, are you going to be fifth the weekend? You just say, yeah, no matter what. Even though you, you weren't really 100%. You know, there's a lot of games I played and um, I wasn't 100%, but I just yeah. didn't want to shy away from it. I remember before I snapped my Achilles, my Achilles was in agony. Going, to, I, I think it was down at Tottenham. And I remember I said to Shearer, who was the manager at the time, but we were struggling with relegation. 
And I said to him about 20 minutes in, I said, listen, Achilles is killing me. And he just says, listen, get out there. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so you just got to get out there and you got to play that. Do whatever well, it takes for yeah, the team. Yeah, I was, I was popping the, the, them pinky uh, and inflammatories every game. Yeah. The amount of times just because I don't want to feel any pain. And that was like normal back in the day. I remember seeing the Gary Speedy's or Shea Givens that take these, these pinky uh, and inflammatories. And they were like smarties to me. I was just getting them down me all the time. So for me, I didn't feel the consequences into probably the latter stages of my career, the ruptured Achilles and big ligament injuries. You know, I, it was just the yeah. one thing you have to deal with. And unfortunately for me, I had to deal with that. But I tell you what, I never uh, had the same injury again after that. Mm -hmm. And I prolonged my career by going abroad and training harder and uh, proving that you can do it. And you can play until, what, 35. And uh, I go on my own terms, not because of injury. Yeah, looking at how people, I mean, the we're just well, we're going to mention about Newcastle United in terms of the rehabilitation and com coming back from injury. I remember famous images of players in paddling pools and things like that. Now it's all cryothera cryotherapy sort of baths and those kind mm -hmm. of things. It's just the better equipped to deal with injuries. And I, I, I can imagine you probably wish it was in, implemented a little bit earlier. No, 100%. <laughs> I think if you look at the players who even had the injuries at Newcastle, when they left, they didn't have injuries. And, you know, you go behind the scenes. Did we did we train hard enough? Probably not. You know, was we, you know, there was the, the, the physio department at the time. And um, I remember when I left and I was looking for a club at the time and the physio department at the time was saying, oh, well, you might have had a, you know, a deficiency or something in the body or something. That was just, nobody knew that which is the biggest thing. But I think um, as times go on, you, you've got to move with the times. You know, you can't stick with what's happened years and years and years ago. But... It's always difficult for the physios because sometimes the physios, their kind of jobs are on the line as well. And with footballers, they sometimes lie to the physio because yeah. they want to play. And a lot of players did that, which kills the kind of physios and your club doctors. So for a lot of us as players, we didn't really help ourselves, I feel. And we have to take our own responsibility with that. And that's the biggest thing, I think, with maybe modern day footballers always on point the blame. And um, yeah, to be honest, with the, with the, uh, the physios, it's difficult because you want to play. If you, if you don't play, someone's going to take your place. And that's the kind of the hardest thing, I think, for a doctor and a physio to, to pass your fit, really. You, you have the cryo, you have the ice bath, like you have mm -hmm. all those top things, uh, which really help recovery and stuff. But a lot of players listening to this right now, like they don't have access to that. So even doing all the stuff outside of training, you always talk about it, doing the extra stretching, foam rolling, mm -hmm. making sure you right, making sure you get the sleep. I think those things compounding over time make the biggest difference in terms of preventing injuries Definitely. and making sure you're performing well. Yeah, well, routine for me was the going to America and doing foam roll band work. So I always focus on my hips, my glutes, especially with a guy who's had injuries, uh, Achilles, um, my shoulders, uh, bicep tendon and the hamstring. I always just did every routine. Did my uh, foam roll for 20 minutes before games. It was always get my band, make sure my glutes are activated before I go on the pitch. Once I did them two things, for me, that was me ready to go to get warmed up. So I always did that injury prevention in the uh, the change room where everyone's just normally sitting there talking, listening to music. I always had to do that. So I always had to have my 20 minutes of my foam roll in my glutes. Yeah. Once I did that, that was every game. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, put my body with a bit of caffeine, pumped it up with a lot of caffeine maybe. <laughs> but it was the uh, the recovery for me after games. Obviously, if, I had a, if I got a game uh, close together, I'd always go in the ice bath straight after. If I didn't, I'd always go uh, three times a week in the heat. So I was always in the sauna. 20 minutes in there and that always goes with the Tyson Fury mentality of I ain't leaving the zone until someone leaves it so that 20 minutes is up and someone comes in I'll go a little bit longer yeah. but the heat helped me I think in um, Portland Timbers I started off there every recovery whether it was a steam room or sauna 20 minutes my body felt like WD-40 all over I felt great <laughs> but it got me on the, the training pitch I never, never missed training never missed um, any games and that was the biggest thing. I think six years of um, no major injuries. I think we're coming to the end of this. I wanted to kind of finish off with a Go quick fire question. Go on, yeah. Very, very quick fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to choose between these. So, Metro Center or Dubai Mall? Dubai Mall. Can you name the three Geordies in Alfida St. Pet? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> All right. Well, it's Oz, Dennis, and Neville. The main character in the goal movie. Goal, obviously, set in Newcastle. Um, Mexican yeah Nunez Nunez there Nunes, we go yeah. favourite manager you've played under Super Robson laziest teammate Ben Arthur play out your Newcastle career as it was or get 100 caps to your country and win the World Cup but you've spent your career at Sunderland no I played Newcastle career <laughs> okay fair <laughs> not enough not a chance <laughs> your lowest moment relegation 
and the highlight of your playing career? Playing for Newcastle United. I love that. That's a great way to finish. Nice Amazing. one. Stevie, thank you so much. Guys, thank for you. For coming on. I appreciate it. Thank Let's you get very that much. promotion. Yeah. Two big matches coming That's up. That's it, yep. It's going to be exciting. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Drop a like on this video if you enjoyed. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and watch it on YouTube. Let us know who you want to see next, and we'll see you next time. Peace.